Five Things That the Blue Zones by Dan Buettner is wrong about. Hey, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my podcast book review of this investigational title. It's a little bit out of date, and I'm going to explain why in this podcast. I just finished this book, and I did enjoy it. I finished it a mere 50 meters from a white sand beach that is crashed upon by the Black Sea here in Bulgaria. So, I enjoyed the book. I'm trying to make up my mind whether I want to give this one four stars or three stars. And hopefully I'll arrive at my decision by the uh, conclusion of my recording here. So this book, it it was very popular because it's got uh, a very uh, appealing, interesting uh, premise. It's about five special places in the world that have a statistically outstanding number of centenarians, people that are over 100 years old. And funnily enough, I actually have spent some time in one of the places. But before I get into this book and tell you what I like about it, what I uh, disagree with in the book, I want to share with you a great life hack for improving your memory. If you read nonfiction books, and I hope that you do, you probably thought to yourself, geez, I spend this time reading these nonfiction books, and then uh, I forget some of the things that are in the book. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of wasteful if you're forgetting some of the important things that you're spending time reading about. And so my life hack for this is Super Memo. And Super Memo is this uh, smartphone slash web app. It's one of those those things that synchronizes in between your browser and your, your phone or your device, uh, Android, iPhone, whatever. And it is an algorithmic flashcard tool where you will read a book and I typically read using a Kindle or using the Google Play reading application. And I highlight things that I want to commit to memory in orange, just because orange is the, uh, it's the accenting color of the Super Memo app. And I highlight those things. And then I will... When I finish the book, I'll go through my highlights and then I'll move the things that I want to remember into my Super Memo account. And then I will be prompted to review those flashcards on an algorithmic basis that accounts for my statistically normal um, increments of forgetting things. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And it does work. Uh, I'm using it to, I used it to learn Spanish and I'm using it now to learn Bulgarian. And it's, yeah, it it kind of hacks the natural forgetting of semantic episodic memory. So I do recommend that if you're going to be reading fiction books, if you're going to read things that, and it's actually free. Uh, They have a paid version, but the free version is quite good. So I will actually link to that in the article below, wherever you are watching or listening to this, and you can go and use that if you want to hack your memory just a bit. And you will, I think, want to check out the article version of this podcast, which again is just going to be linked directly below this. And in there, I've got 
some photos, and I've got some links and some references for some of the things that I'm going to be talking about here. So what are the blue zones from the book? I'll quote, when we first set out to investigate the mysteries of human longevity, we teamed up with demographers and scientists at the National Institute on Aging to identify pockets around the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. These are the places where people reach age 100 at rates significantly higher on average, live longer, healthier lives than Americans do. They also suffer a fraction of the rate of killer diseases that Americans do. We worked with some of the world's top longevity experts to distill lifestyles into the characteristics that could help explain their extraordinary longevity. Their cultures have evolved this wisdom over time, just as nature selects for characteristics that favor the survival of a species, I believe that these cultures have passed on positive habits over time in a way that most favors the longevity of their members. And so, of course, you're wondering, where are the blue zones? That would be the Barbaria region of Sardinia, uh, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, the community of Loma Linda in California, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and the Greek island, the Greece, the Grecan Isle, perhaps we could say, with a little bit of flourish, of Ikaria. And I've got uh, photos of these these places. They all look they all look quite sunny. They look like uh, good places to uh, to grow old in, certainly. So about the Sardinian Blue Zone. This place sounds magical. So I'm going to go through the five Blue Zones and kind of share some takeaways that I got from the book. Quote, the population there appeared to be the longest lived in Italy, perhaps even in the world. In one village of 2,500 people, he said he'd found seven centenarians, a staggering number given that the ratio for centenarians in the U.S. is roughly one per 5,000. That's something to think about, right? That only one American out of 5,000 lives to being 100 years old. I know that I... I would like to be that one myself. I'm, uh, that's what I'm aiming for. That's what I'm aiming for. And I think uh, keeping up with all the biohacking stuff that me here and the missus do, I think I'm going to make it to 100. Okay, about the Sardinian diet, because obviously diet has everything to do with making it into the three-figure range, right? In 26 of 71 municipalities surveyed, meat is a luxury eaten only during festivals, not more than twice a month. Interestingly, for a Mediterranean culture, fish did not figure prominently into the diet. And apparently they also drink a lot of cows or a lot of goat's milk there not cow's milk. Compared to cow's milk, goat's milk delivers a powerful nutritional punch. One glass contains 13% more calcium, 25% more vitamin B6, 47% more vitamin A, 134% more potassium, and three times more niacin. Results of a 20, 2007 University of Granada study found that it may also be better at preventing iron deficiencies and mineral losses in bones. So yeah, you really should make the switch from 
the uh, from dairy, from cow's milk, the kind that uh, you can find there, that you can find uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, you know, the bottles of it there in the grocery store. You want to make the switch to uh, the stuff that's not quite as, as popular, the goat's milk. I, I think it tastes about the same. I, I can't detect a real difference in that, but this was something also echoed in the Plant Paradox by Dr. Gundry. He was talking about how the uh, milk that comes from the A1 cows, which is the most popular type of cow that is uh, ranched, I think, in North America and also in Europe, how the milk they produce, uh, it just has all of these problematic things about it. And it becomes even more problematic when it comes out of a factory farming operation, when it is going to have a ton of antibiotics in it. That stuff I would stay far away from. It also comments on the Sardinian men, and as you probably know, men tend to die earlier, and the Sardinian men were an exception to this. They are uh, extraordinarily long-lived, and their character is described thusly. Strong will, high self-esteem, and great stubbornness. And those sound to me like... Good character qualities for a man to aspire to. Moving on to the next blue zone, which is in Okinawa. And that's not a place that I've ever been, but I feel a connection to Okinawa because I studied karate for, must have been about three and a half years. And I learned all about how... uh, Karate evolved as this uh, rebellious martial art that the Okinawans developed to try to resist the uh, Japanese imperialists that were there. But uh, alas, I've never been there. Some takeaways from Okinawa is that you want to eat sweet potatoes. That's right. You want to make sure, as I do, I make sure that I'm getting sweet potatoes in about uh, once a week. Sweet potatoes are one of the the top uh, vegetables, or a a tuber, in fact. They're one of the the healthiest tubers that you can consume, uh, resistant starch. The book describes the history, actually. Things improved a little in 1605 when an Okinawan brought the sweet potato back with him from China. So sweet potatoes are from China. Interesting factoid, right? This hardy miracle tuber thrived just fine in Okinawa's stingy soil and weathered its typhoons and monsoons. It was a boon for peasants, quickly becoming a staple. And get this, the tuber was so ubiquitous that before World War II, instead of saying, hello, the islanders greeted each other by saying, nu kamotuin, which translates as, are you getting enough emo? And emo was the word for sweet potatoes. So you would uh, see your neighbor, you know, when you were uh, out there doing your gardening or whatever, and wave to him over the fence and saying, are you eating enough sweet potato today? And he'd say, yep, yep, sure am. You, yep, you know it. <laughs> Another takeaway from Okinawa. They have a phrase, which is harahachibu. Harahachibu. This is a, a good phrase to remember, and you can uh, throw it out at uh, the next co- cocktail party that you're at, and it'll make you sound uh, very cosmopolitan. In fact, Hara Hachibu. This is something that you may want to add to uh, that uh, Super Memo account that I hope you have uh, already signed up for. And this basically means to, when you sit down to have a meal, it means to eat to 80%. And from the book, it's a Confucian-inspired adage. 
all of the old folks so say it before, they eat. It means eat until you are 80% full. And then the third blue zone is in Loma Linda, California. Yes, uh, America did make the list, which uh, gives me a little bit of self-esteem, a little bit of patriotism. It's, it's an important quality, apparently. And America made the list because of the Adventist community there in Loma Linda. And in case you don't know much about Adventists, this is just a denomination of evangelical Protestant Christians. I don't know much about their specific beliefs other than the fact that, according to the book, for Adventists, healthiness is next to godliness. And I like that phrase a whole lot more than the really stupid phrase, which is that uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. And the Adventists are, I would say, uh, Christians that take what it says in the New Testament very seriously, where, where it says that your body is a temple, and if your body is supposed to be a, a temple for the, the Holy Spirit to live in, then you shouldn't be filling it up with a bunch of junk food. So they are uh, largely vegetarian there, and vegetarianism is obviously not uh, ideal. It's not quite the perfect way to live, but it's a whole lot better than the kind of diet that the majority of Americans have. So the Adventist thing is kind of interesting. That makes me kind of think that maybe I should be an Adventist because uh, they seem to be the biohackers of the, of the Christian denominations. And as I mentioned, they do... Uh, okay, there was a survey... It was called the AHS-1 survey. Um, was that approximately half of the Adventists were vegetarians or rarely ate meat. And this seemed to be a pretty consistent thing across the Blue Zones among the uh, these populations that were very healthy, was that they went easy on meat. They were not like stuffing themselves with meat. And also some good news, you can go nuts as an aspirational centenarian. And I mean, you can enjoy a lot of nuts. Quote, recent findings from a large study of Seventh-day Adventists show that those who ate nuts at least five times a week had a rate of heart disease that was half that of those who rarely ate nuts. A health claim about nuts is among the first qualified claims permitted by the Food and Drug Administration. In 2003, the FDA allowed a qualified health claim that read, scientific evidence suggests but does not prove that eating one and a half ounces per day of most nuts as part of a diet low in saturated fat and cholesterol may reduce the risk of heart disease. And I'm... Uh, a selective fan of nuts. I try to have a Brazil nut or two a week, or a day. I try to have a Brazil nut or two a day. The interesting thing that I heard about Brazil nuts recently is that the iodine and the, the iodine that the Brazil nuts uh, give us is a special type of iodine that it is impossible to overdose on. You've heard mixed things about iodine, and I have not made up my mind about iodine yet, but I am definitely leaning towards the camp that says that there's such a thing as too much iodine, that iodine poisoning, uh, iodine excess could be problematic. But apparently the iodine form in the Brazil nuts 
is something that if you get an excess of it, then the body just uh, intelligently excretes it, which is pretty cool. So Brazil nuts for that reason. I like cashews. I like uh, almonds, macadamians. These are all well worth uh, well worth investing in. These should be your your snack food. Can you like pumpkin seeds? Oh yes, pumpkin seeds are tasty. That would be the wifey there. She said that she wasn't going to be doing this podcast with me, but she couldn't she couldn't resist intervening and commenting. That's quite all right. I just love listening to him. The next takeaway from the Adventists is to drink more water. And this is one of these really low-hanging health things is most people simply don't drink enough water. And uh, water's awesome. Almost all of us could probably do with drinking just a bit more water. According to the Mayo Clinic, it takes an average of eight cups of water. Did you hear that, babe? Eight cups of water to replace what your body uses normally every day. So you can kind of think about your own lifestyle and think about how many cups of water a day are you having? And if it's less than eight, then those are rookie numbers. You need to you need to pump those up. And moderate exercise increases the amount by one to two cups. So I use a standing desk. So I'm spending probably six or seven hours every day standing. I'm pretty sure that that counts as moderate exercise. So someone like me should be shooting for about 10 glasses of water every day. And I have been hitting this goal recently because of a very cool new biohack that I've got in my life, which is the Infopathy device that I've been showing off on uh, Instagram recently. And I've got it linked to in the article below. And this is a device that uses a phenomena called water memory. This was this is actually a, it, it sounds kind of like a woo-woo thing, but there's actually pretty decent science behind this. And this is an effect where water can be imbued with a signal of something else. And things like medicine and supplements can be imprinted onto water and then the signal of supplements or drugs or even things like rife frequencies, they can be drank in and then that signal gets communicated to your body. And so it's kind of a way of doing non-pharmacological biohacking. It's something that I've been experimenting with recently, and it does have a subtle yet noticeable effect. There is some uh, clinical studies on this. There's some animal trials that are on this, uh, proving that it's not just a placebo effect. And then there's actually some in vitro research that was done with this. And so I use this device. In fact, I will show it to you. And this device, I just uh, put a glass of water over it. And then I will imprint onto that glass of water a particular drug or supplement. So today, I was just using a uh, Alpha GPC infaceutical. I was imprinting the essence of Alpha GPC, if you will, onto water. And this is because I was using a racetam-rich nootropic stack. And if you know a bit about smart drugs, you know that the racetams should be combined with Alpha GPC. And indeed, when I use that infaceutical, I get that synergistic kind of effect from it. Pretty cool, right? I'm going to put out another video probably next week explaining that a little bit more. But the takeaway is that I've been drinking 
a lot more water, which is uh, which is a good thing. Speaking of water, the next blue zone is in the Aegean. Boy, the Aegean. Doesn't that just seem like a seem like a mysterious, magical place? I think about uh, Odysseus there crossing the Aegean, trying to avoid uh, all those temptations that Odysseus had to avoid there. And there's an island in the Aegean called Icaria. And I'm going to include some photos of that. And I'll describe the Icarian diet. They consume about six times as many beans a day as Americans. Six times! My God, babe. Imagine if we were consuming six times as many beans a day as Americans. Wow. Just imagine the tooting. <laughs> Just imagine the tooting that would ensue in our in our bedroom. It would be damn near impossible for us to record podcasts with the uh, with the audio quality that I demand. I would have to spend all my time editing out the toots from the from the podcast. I can't imagine. Uh, but that but apparently that works for them there in Icaria, and they ate fish only twice a week, consumed meat five times a month, and drank up to six cups of coffee a day, and took in about a quarter as much refined sugar. And the elderly folks there did not like soda. And they also have high levels of olive oil consumption, and they drink two to four glasses of wine a day. So, again, we can see in the blue zones that people are not going crazy with the, with the meat intake. What I suspect is going on here in these blue zones is that when they do eat meat, they're doing it in a, to celebrate some sort of festival, birthdays, religious holidays, things like that. And so they are probably only consuming the really high quality meat. They're probably not like they're probably not like having chicken. They're probably they've probably got like a I don't know a, a prized lamb or something that they're that they're slaughtering and then enjoying that so that their their meat intake is uh, quality over quantity, which uh, obviously that works. And there's a story relayed in the book that I really loved about Ikaria. So I'll share it with you. So one day at work, Stamatis, Stamatis is a Greek guy that immigrated to the United States. Okay, so Stamatis, now in his early 60s, fell short of breath. It seemed to be happening more and more often. He fatigued quickly. Climbing stairs was a chore. Often he was forced to put down his brush, he was a painter, by midday. His doctor took x-rays and quickly concluded that Stomatis had lung cancer. Perhaps from years of inhaling paint fumes or his three-pack-a-day smoking habit. Stomatis wasn't sure why. It's probably both of those things, I imagine. Four more doctors confirmed the diagnosis, and they gave him six to nine months to live. That's something. They gave him a, a death sentence. Stomatis considered staying in Boynton Beach, which I think is in Florida, where he could seek aggressive cancer treatment at the local hospital. That would allow him to remain close to his three children, who are now adults. Or, it occurred to him, he could return to Ikaria, which is uh, where he was from. There, he could be buried with his parents in a sloping cemetery shaded by oak trees. 
overlooking a cobalt blue Aegean sea. A funeral in Boynton Beach would cost at least $1,200. Wow, I didn't know a funeral was that expensive. While a nice funeral in Icaria would cost only about $200, leaving more of his retirement savings for Elpiniki. Elpiniki, that was his wife's name. She was also Greek. Elpiniki, isn't that a cute name? Have you ever known anyone named Elpiniki? No. Okay, well, eh, we're not Greek. Okay, so he decided to die among his countrymen and ancestors. Good move. Stamatis and Elpiniki moved in with Stamatis's elderly parents in a tiny whitewashed house on two acres of rolling vineyards. At first, he spent his days in bed as his mother and wife tended to him. Sensing the end was near, he decided to reconnect with his religion. Good move, Stamatus. On Sunday mornings, he forced himself out of bed and hobbled up the hill to a tiny Greek Orthodox chapel where his grandfather had once served as a priest. When his childhood friends discovered that he had moved back, they started visiting him regularly. They would talk for hours, invariably bringing him the locally produced wine, which he sipped all day long. What the hell, he thought. I might as well die happy. And I'm, I'm with you on that. If you've got cancer, if you've got a death sentence, hey, enjoy some, enjoy some wine. Enjoy the weather. However, in the ensuing months, something strange happened. He started to feel stronger. He got out of bed in the afternoon and shuffled around the gardens and vineyards behind the house. One day, feeling ambitious, he planted some potatoes. You know, he's like me. Like, I'm an ambitious, aspirational farmer, you know? I'm a web developer, but when I look at myself in the mirror, I see, I see what could be a farmer, like Stamatis. Okay, so he started planting some potatoes, some green onions, garlic, and carrots. He didn't expect to be alive to harvest them, but he enjoyed filling the sunshine, breathing the clean ocean air, and getting his hands dirty with the soil of his birth. Elpiniki could enjoy the fresh vegetables after he was gone. <laughs> no offense, no offense to the Elpinikis out there. If you're listening, you just got, that's just the cutest name, isn't it? Like I imagine this being like the name of a small, of a small dog. You know, like one of those dogs that's like a that's like a cat-sized dog could be named Elpiniki. Anyways, six months came and went. Stomatis didn't die. Instead, he harvested that garden and, feeling emboldened, cleaned up the family vineyard as well, easing himself into the island routine. He woke up late worked in the vineyards until mid-afternoon, made himself lunch, and then took a long nap. In the evenings, he drank wine with friends at home or walked to the local tavern, where he stayed up past midnight playing dominoes. The years passed. His health continued to improve. He added a couple of rooms to his parents' homestead so his children could visit. He built up the vineyard, producing 400 gallons of wine a year. Today, 35 years later, he is 100 years old and cancer-free. He never went through chemotherapy, never took drugs, or sought therapy of any sort. All he did was move to Ikaria and live the, uh, the chill 
Ikarian life. And he explains, it just went away. He said, I actually went back to America about 10 years after moving here to see if the doctors could explain it to me. What happened? I asked. And he responded, get this, my doctors were all dead. That's So it would seem that a major biohack for longevity is to get the hell out of the United States. That's what I did. And I do not regret it one bit. But uh, don't get me started on that tangent. I found that to be an amazing story. Moving on to the final blue zone, that would be Costa Rica. And this is the blue zone that I visited. I spent, I think it was about 10 days, once upon a time, in the Nicoya Peninsula in northwest Costa Rica. And apparently, this is a place that has a statistically significant number of centenarians. However, I have to admit that this this blue zone, I had some trouble buying myself. I had some trouble believing that because I spent, yeah, about 10 days in this place. And when I was there, I marveled at how unhealthy the place seemed to me, or I marveled at how unhealthy the habits of the people there seemed to be. The uh, It seemed like they ate an incredible amount of junk food there, uh, and when they weren't eating junk food, it seemed like they were eating, uh, eating these processed, uh, these tortillas, um, the, the food I was not impressed with there. In fact, I began eating coconuts because coconuts were so easy to get there. And all of the food was just, it was just far below my standards in that little corner of the world. I mean, there were some things I enjoyed about the place. The place had perhaps some redeeming features. There's a good friend of mine that has decided to live there. But uh, yeah, a lot of people smoked there. Um, people are drinking uh, cheap beer, really cheap, really crappy beer and rum there constantly. Um, but apparently they have a statistically significant number of centenarians. I'll quote from the book, Costa Rica spends only 15% of what America does on healthcare, um, well, they have a uh, socialized healthcare, yet its people appear to be living longer, seemingly healthier lives than people in any other country on earth. Gianni observed that the more daughters a man has, the longer he lives, that people born in the winter seem to live longer than those born in the summer, and that people who think they're going to live longer actually do. That's uh, Well, that last one is predictable, but the other one about the, the daughters and about the summer and the winter, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? The book... Uh, gives a tacit um, a mention of promiscuity. The book suggests a connection between promiscuity and longevity. Yes, really. I'll quote from the book. It says, He also grew corn, beans, and vegetables to feed his wife and six children. I also had two kids with a village girl, he said, matter-of-factly, out of nowhere. Did your wife care? I asked. I don't know, he shrugged. We didn't talk about it. He went on to tell me, unapologetically, that he never gave the children his name, nor did he ever support them. How do I know if they're going to turn out okay? He exclaimed, as if explaining his actions, and... This is uh, something that rings true from my experience. 
when I, I spent, uh, oh boy, I spent probably seven or eight months around that part of the world. And I remember people saying that, uh, yeah, there's the the nuclear family and fidelity and loyalty is really not regarded highly there. Uh, men in those cultures um, have no qualms about producing a lot of bastard children, which of course produce more of that. So I thought that was a little, I can't imagine any mechanism whereby promiscuity is good for longevity. If anything, it seems to me that the the stress uh, that surrounds promiscuity would uh, hurt longevity. Although I'll tell, I'll tell a funny story about the Nicoya Peninsula. I thought I was going to have to fight some guys with a rock once upon a time in the Nicoya Peninsula. My friend had dropped me off at uh, salsa classes. Uh, apparently they did, they did salsa classes. There was this funny Costa Rican gay guy that led the salsa classes. And uh, someone introduced me to him at a bar. And he said, oh man, come to my salsa classes. I'll teach you to dance salsa. And then I'll uh, introduce you to some young ladies. And, you know, I'm a single guy, digital nomad dude. So I'm like, sure, I'm not going to turn down that offer. So I go to the salsa class. And the ladies he introduced me to were uh, not, not what I was, not what I was there interested in, in the least bit. So I finished up the salsa class. And then I went to go and walk back to my buddy's place where I was staying and it was I don't know maybe two three kilometers away from where the salsa classes were in kind of a rural part of Costa Rica but my buddy was like oh you just follow this street take a right take a left take your second right and you'll be back just just walk home it's fine so it's like all right I got that I can handle that but in, especially in rural Costa Rica, they have no street signs. And I ended up getting a little bit turned around in uh, rural uh, backwater Costa Rica and getting really lost, uh, just wandering the roads of uh, rural Costa Rica. And I didn't even have a SIM card in my cell phone to where I could call my buddy. And so I'm walking down the street and I see, I, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm walking out kind of in nature, really. And I see, I don't know, up ahead of me a ways, I see these three guys kind of hanging out below kind of a, a light. And they kind of look like, like shady young guys. And I'm think, I have heard about tourists getting mugged and jumped here in rural Costa Rica. And uh, I was... I was dressed kind of uh, to, to impress, like I was wearing kind of a, a nice shirt and nice jeans because I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was going out salsa dancing, right? And I'm like, oh shit, this could go badly. And so as I walk through a shadow, I lean down and I grab a big sharp rock and I put it in my back pocket because I'm like, if I have to fight these guys, uh... Maybe this rock will help. So I put this, this big sharp rock in my back pocket and then I just keep walking. And I just walk by the guys and uh, I just say, uh, Buenas noches, Pura Vida. And they just give me a nod, Pura Vida, man. And everything, everything was fine. But I was, yeah, I was prepared. I was prepared for uh, things, to, things to get barbaric. What happened was I wandered around until I was totally lost and had no idea where I was going. And then what I decided to do was there was a little house. I saw a little house with a light on in it and a television blaring. And I figured I'd go ask them to use their telephone and call my friend because I had his phone number in my cell phone. And so I go and knock on the door and they, it's some young Costa Rican like teenagers. And they are, of course, a bit surprised to like have a gringo knocking on their door in uh, the evening 
And they ask me, do you know Chuck? And I'm like, yeah, I know Chuck. That's who I'm staying with. And they're like, oh yeah, well, we know your Lenny's. And your Lenny's was his girlfriend, uh, fiance, I think his wife now. And they were like, yeah, we know, we know his girlfriend. We'll just call her and tell her that you're here and that he needs to come and pick you up with his motorcycle. And I was like, yeah, perfect. Let's just, let's just do that. So it was kind of a funny uh, cultural experience. You know, it's uh, in these small towns, people, people know each other. It's, uh, yeah, that was one of those cool uh, cultural, cultural moments. So moving towards my conclusion on this book review, I want to talk about the five things that I think The Blue Zones is wrong about. So I'm going to deduct some uh, stars from this book. I think I'm going to deduct two or three stars, or one or two stars from the book. Um, Because, yeah, it's a little bit out of date. So first thing that I really disagree with, I ran into in the first chapter. And I'll quote, the idea of discovering a magic source of long life still has so much appeal today, five centuries later, that charlatans and fools perpetuate the same boneheaded quest. Whether it comes disguised as a pill, diet, or medical procedure, in an all-out effort to squash the charlatans forever, demographer S.J. Olshansky of the University of Illinois at Chicago and more than 50 of the world's top longevity experts issued a position statement in 2002, so that was almost 20 years ago, that was as blunt as they could fashion it. Our language on this matter must be ambiguous. There are no lifestyle changes, no surgical procedures, no vitamins, no antioxidants, no hormones, or techniques of genetic engineering available today that have been demonstrated to influence the process of aging. My God, what a load of steaming horseshit, right? What total bullshit. This is an amazing attitude that... uh, that the elites in academia and institutions have had for a long time, which is that lifestyle changes, diet changes, uh, supplements, um, therapies, that these things do not impact health or longevity. These these over-educated assholes are denying basic cause and effect. Um, it's, It's pretty amazing that this was a prevalent attitude that people have had uh, for a long time, that this is a mainstream attitude that uh, has filtered down out of these institutions. And so I found this, I found this such an absurd thing to say that I looked up this Olshansky guy, and he's with the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois. And he has, I might mention, a really, really lame website. And this is uh, kind of a red pill, which is that anytime you see someone who's involved with public health, there's about a 95% chance that they their work And what they are about has nothing to do with health. These public health people, these are, uh, these people are mostly just communists. These are people, they do not give a damn about public health. What these people are about is herd management. These are people that believe that you and your family and the people that you love, 
They believe that they are a herd to be managed. They believe that you are human tax livestock and they don't care about your thriving. They don't care about you being happy or healthy or living a long, a good, you know, long life. What they care about is that you are acquiescent, subservient tax livestock. And that's why, that's why these kind of people, that's why 50 of these kinds of people got together and they said that vitamins, supplements, diet, lifestyle, there's no causality whatsoever. That is where that bullshit comes from. That does not come from science, observation, self-experimentation. That comes from this absolutely dehumanizing ideology, which has grown like a, a cancer to just consume a lot of these types of institutions. Should I tell them how I really feel about this, babe? Should I, should I really, should I really let Olshansky know what I think of his type of people? I think I've said enough. I think I've said enough, but I, I found it uh, shameful that they would begin the book with saying something like that, that's so uh, contrary to the self-empowerment kind of message that a book uh, like this should have. Okay, next thing the book is wrong about. The book kind of suggests that alcohol consumption might be healthy. Apparently, in a lot of these blue zones, the centenarians drink daily. For example, her father drank a liter of Sardinian wine every day of his adult life and more during festivals. And this is kind of one of these things that this is one of these health myths that was that, that was pushed for a while. Uh, and I think it's still pushed, which is that alcohol can be healthy and the evidence is stacking up against this. Largely, if you have an aura ring or if you have any type of biohacking technology that allows for you to monitor your sleep quality, you'll discover that even a little bit of alcohol decreases your sleep quality. And so... I enjoy alcohol myself, but I biohack. I do all these other healthy things so that I can get away with enjoying a little bit of alcohol. So don't, uh, yeah, don't buy this myth that alcohol can be healthy. It's not healthy, but if you want to enjoy alcohol, just make sure that you're doing all of the other healthy things on top of that. And you might end up living to be 100 years old, like uh, like the gentleman there in Sardinia. Next thing the book is wrong about, it recommends soy as a health food. Do you guys remember this? Uh, back in the early 2000s, back in the 90s, people thought soy was a health food. And since then, science has advanced. Now we know that soy has way too many lectins in it. Those lectins are really problematic. And then the estrogen content in soy is uh, problematic, particularly for men. The book does recommend turmeric. It says, did you notice all the turmeric? It's talking about in Okinawa. Apparently in Okinawa, they have a lot of turmeric. Turmeric is one-fifth as powerful as cisplatin, which is one of the most powerful drugs in chemotherapy. Turmeric is an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, anti-cancer. This comes back to inflammation. Many age-related diseases are caused by an immune system out of balance. Excessive or unnecessary Inflammation accelerates heart disease, bone loss, Alzheimer's disease. Antioxidants found in vegetables and herbs are also important because of the same oxidation process that rusts our cars also deteriorates our bodies. So that's a good point. Yeah, turmeric is a superfood. Uh, turmeric can be pretty amazing, but only if you are getting 
pure turmeric. And unfortunately, the majority of the turmeric that you might find on store shelves, the turmeric that you find there on Amazon.com, this stuff is rife with heavy metals and with toxins. Unfortunately, the manufacturing standards for things like turmeric in India are very low. And if you are, if, if you go to your grocery store and you pick up whatever the turmeric is that they have available, you got pretty close to a 100% chance of getting your turmeric along with a bunch of uh, nasty heavy metals as a result of shoddy manufacturing processes, which obviously that deducts dramatically from the health value that you're actually getting out of the turmeric. And so I wish that the book had said, make sure that you actually get pure turmeric from a really credible source. The only credible turmeric source that I know of is the uh, Health Ranger store based there in uh, Texas. And I will link actually to their stuff. Next thing I thought the book was wrong about. The book mentions fasting just once and seems to recommend caloric restriction, restriction, eating to just 80% and then eating to just 80% full. It repeated that several times throughout the book. And here's the thing. Caloric restriction is a legitimate, valid anti-aging strategy. But we know now that fasting is a much better form of caloric restriction, and it is a lot easier to do than eating to 80%. And with fasting, whether you're doing an intermittent daily fast, whether you're doing a 24-hour water fast, whether you're doing one of those uh, more challenging multi-day fasts, what you're doing is you're giving your body a break from the time intense, from the resource intensive process of metabolism. And your body is like, whoa, I finally got a break from, uh, from, from converting all this food into energy. Now I can work on pumping up the immune system. I can do some autophagy. Your body gets to do all these other important things. And if you're if you're eating smaller meals, if you're eating smaller meals and eating to 80%, the way that they do in Okinawa, you're still getting caloric restriction. That's part of the reason why the people are living longer there, but your body is not actually getting that break from metabolism that it needs really badly. Not to mention eating to 80% and then stopping. This sounds like a self flagellatory self-control challenge that a lot of people are not going to be up to. Because when you're hungry, you want to eat until you're full, right? Your biology compels you to eat until you're full. I just don't think there's going to be very many people that are going to, especially if, if it's dinner time, if it's like their major meal of the day, that they're going to say, oh, oh, okay, let me, you know, let me eat just to 80% and then I'll walk away from the table. To me, this is like, a, to me, this is like the people, the guys that skeet, skeet. Maybe you've heard about this. This is like the guys that are having uh, unprotected sex and they say, you know what? I'm not going to wear a condom. I'm not going to wear a condom, but I don't want to have a baby. So I'm just going to pull out. I'm just, I'm just going to pull out before I come. I, I'm going to go 80% of the way. And even though all of my biology compels me to go 100% of the way, oh, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. This is, this is a similar, uh, a similar self-control, uh, strategy. And I suppose that worked for us, but that's kind of because I do the, the tantric, the tantric thing, mm -hmm. you know? So 
I, yeah, I think that fasting is a much better idea than caloric restriction, than doing it 80% of the way. And then the final thing that I disagree uh, with the book on is kind of the premise itself. The premise itself of the book is that what empowers health for people in one place in the world, in one unique culture, might make people healthier in other places. And I certainly think that we can learn from other cultures. That's part of the reason why I became a digital nomad guy in the first place. That's great. But people are different in different places. There are very distinct genetic differences between the way metabolism works for different people around the world. And the idea that you want to take something, something that works in Okinawa for Okinawans, that might not work for you. In the book, for example, it describes, it says beans are cornerstone of each of the Blue Zone diets. And we know now you can look at my book review of The Plant Paradox, uh, for example. We know that beans and legumes are really heavy in those lectins. And those lectins are a major problem for people of Northern European ancestry. Uh, people from Scandinavia, uh, Anglo-Saxons, people like me, we don't do well with all of those type of Lectins, I guess they do uh, down there in uh, Costa Rica. Uh, I remember they were eating a lot of beans when I was down there. Apparently, they, they eat a lot of beans there in Ikaria. But that doesn't mean that someone uh, from Northern Europe like me should be eating that sort of thing. I would end up having problems with that sort of thing. And of course, that, that fits with every other Blue Zone Suggestion. Like, let's say you are a person of a Native American Indian ancestry. Well, you are lacking some of the genes that allow you to properly metabolize alcohol. So you should not be drinking red wine the way that our Sardinian might, right? So you want to take a look at these different health practices. In fact, you wanna take a look at every health practice that you might hear about, and you wanna compare that with what your ancestors would do historically. There's certainly kind of some, there's some real uh, benefit and value to getting in touch with your, your ancestry and looking at, thinking about, hey, uh, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, a thousand years ago, what were my ancestors eating? And that's probably the kind of things that you should have a little bit more of. And you want to take with a, a grain of salt, you know, what people might be doing in Costa Rica that seems to result in them living a long time. So those are my five uh, disagreements with the book. Although I should point out that uh, this might kind of be my fault because I read an older version of the book. I actually read the first edition of the book, which was originally published in 2008. And there was a newer version that came out in 2012. I will link to that version. So do read that version if you read the book. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the book. I uh, found all of the... Uh, all the anecdotes in it, uh, beautiful. I thought it was a, a cool kind of cultural exploration of the world. And from the book, there's, there's three Fs, okay? I took away from the book three Fs of longevity. These are commonalities between the blue zones. And because this podcast is uh, wearing on a little bit, you're going to have to go over to my article to get those three Fs. I describe them in depth there. These are three Fs that should definitely be a part of your life. These are three uh, 
meaningful lessons that we can take away from the Blue Zones. And I do hope that in my life that I get the chance to uh, visit more than one of those. I'm thinking about, think about Ikaria, babe. Ikaria is not that far from here. Mm-hmm. We could, uh, let's look that up. Let's look up Airbnbs in Ikaria. And we will also uh, have to look up boats. <laughs> unless, unless we're going to be swimming there. <laughs> so those are my thoughts on the Blue Zones by Dan Butner. Do leave me a comment or drop me a message on social media letting me know if you agree or disagree with the, uh, the things that I think the book is wrong about. I'm curious about that. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. Looking forward to a continued conversation with you.